brothers and sisters, please turn with me this morning uh, in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians, as we will be looking at uh, chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10, as we encounter here part 3 in our study of the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear with me then the reading of God's word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Thus far as the ring of God's word. Now last week we took an in-depth look at verses 3 and 4 drawing upon the very intentional language of Paul, who in his description helped to clear away any notion that the man of sin would be anyone other than someone who comes from inside the church. But I must confess that just as clear as he was in those verses, he is ambiguous in the ones that follow. Now when I say he's ambiguous, I don't mean that he was being ambiguous with the saints in Thessalonica, to whom he is addressing this letter but more so with respect to all of us. Because you see, Paul says, starting in verse 5, where we pick up today, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. You see, Paul had once before told them all of what we are reading here in chapter 2. They had the details. Perhaps he informed them of these things when he planted the church in Acts 17. But because he's already told them once, he doesn't fill in every detail once again here. And this is obvious in verse 6 when he says, And you know what is restraining the man of sin. They know what they should know. And so he doesn't repeat what it is they know. But rather he assumes they're following along with what he's describing. And I'm sure they are. But because of this, it has created debate, specifically concerning who or what is restraining the man of sin for a time. But even before we get into that, I think we should perhaps address a bigger issue brought up by Paul in verse 5 that I think is a sweeping indictment on Christians everywhere for our entire history as a church. And that issue is that the Thessalonians, as well as you and me and every Christian, we too easily forget the truth of God's Word. We too easily forget spiritual things. This is what Paul reproves them for in verse 5. He says, don't you remember? I already told you. 
you can sense his irritation because he shouldn't be having to tell them these things once again, especially since this is a very young church. They haven't been in existence for a long time. It wasn't that long ago he spoke these words to them. And already he's having to warn them once again because they have forgot. And why is it? Why is it that we can remember and plan and prepare for a vacation a year in advance? Or we can remember what we learned in schools, in our school years ago that now helps us in our careers today. But when it comes to heavenly things, it oftentimes falls on deaf ears. We can hear a sermon preached on Sunday, and by Monday we can't recall the details of what it was about. And so Paul's words are a reproof to all of us here as well. We're all guilty of this, of not receiving the word with due care. When it's proclaimed, we ought to relish it, brothers and sisters. We ought to think about it, meditate upon it, write it down if you have to. Go back over it and be careful to never let the words of our Lord grow cold in our hearts and be forgotten in our minds. For these are precious words. They're words of life. Words that nourish and sustain. Words that warn and protect. Because we see what happens when we forget. The Thessalonians were quickly shaken, alarmed, troubled, not knowing what to think when they were already supplied with the answers. Let us learn that so many of our troubles, our worries and anxieties over our circumstances, or the circumstances of those around us, or what's going on in our nation, wouldn't exist. It wouldn't shake us if we only remembered what God has spoken to us through his word. For they are words of peace to our hearts. And so with that out of the way, it's this inspired word given to Paul and revealed to the saints that we're going to pick up on today in verses 6 through 10, which will be our first point this morning, and we'll call it the biblical testimony concerning the man of sin. Point two, then, we'll pivot to the historical evidence for the man of sin, and then finish with point three, where we'll consider the confessional significance for including the man of sin. So biblical testimony, historical evidence, and confessional significance. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells the Thessalonians what must first take place before Christ returns, the apostasy and the revealing of the man of sin. Now Paul, in verse 6, tells the saints that there is something that is restraining the man of sin at the present time, and which will continue to do so until he's fully revealed at his appointed time. And so the question is for us, what was or is restraining the man of sin? And there are many theories that have been thrown about. Some have said the Jewish state. Others have said Satan or angelic beings, evil angelic beings, false teachers. Some have said the Holy Spirit. Now I do not think that what is restraining the man of sin is anything evil. I don't think we have here Satan working against Satan. Nor do I think what is being spoken of is the Holy Spirit. And I believe that because in verse 7, we read that the one who is restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Verse 7 reads, For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. You see, we have to understand the thinking that usually is behind this theory. Because it's believed by some that the church will be raptured 
before the man of sin is revealed. And so the church who is indwelt by the Spirit will be out of the picture, and thus the Holy Spirit will be removed with them. Now besides the fact that nowhere in Scripture do we see the church being raptured before the tribulation, I don't think either we can ever speak of the Holy Spirit being taken out of the way or, or leaving the scene, especially when these folks also believe that there will still be believers on the earth during the tribulation period. Because no matter when, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, if you're a saint, you have the Spirit. And then lastly, I don't think that it is the Jewish state either, because of what we read in verse 7. And this is where an issue then comes into play. The restrainer in verse 6 is spoken of in the neuter. It's something that holds him back. What is restraining him now? In verse 7, the restrainer is now spoken of in the masculine. And so the what is now described as the one who holds him back, or who restrains. Now in response to this issue, most say that what restrains him in verse 6 is an impersonal force, and who restrains him in verse 7 is a personal one. So when we talk about the Jewish state, that might work for verse 6, the what. But I'm not sure how that fits with verse 7. And so as I wrestled with this text myself, preparing to teach it to you, I, in all honesty, think that there are two good possibilities for what and who the restrainer could be that alleviate the issue, and that I think are the best ways for us to understand the text. And so the first view would be that what is restraining the man of sin in verse 6 is the Roman Empire. And in fact, this could be the reason why Paul simply tells the saints that you know what is restraining him, because he doesn't want to put it down in print to stir up any trouble with the emperor at the time. But the fact is, is that during this time, the Roman Empire exercised great rule. And so this man of sin would never be able to be made visible unless their power and sway over the people was removed. And so Paul's saying the Roman Empire is what's restraining the man of sin. Then the one who is restraining him in verse 7, they would identify with the emperor himself at the time. And this was actually a widely held, held view in the ancient church. Uh, Tertullian, Cyril of Jerusalem, and John Chrysostom held this view. And even though Augustine says that he isn't sure who it is that restrains, he believes it can be rightly interpreted as the Roman Empire. This was also the view of the Reformers. I know a lot of times they're the ones credited with this type of thinking. But in fact, they weren't trying to innovate but rather they went back to the sources and they looked to align themselves with the church and what has been the position of the saints who came before them. Now the other position that I think is best and the one I myself lean towards is that the what that does the restraining in verse 6 is the word of God or is the gospel. And the who that does the restraining in verse 7 is an angel of the Lord. And in particular, the angel we read of in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. And this is why I lean towards this view, because I believe it has biblical support and strong biblical support. Calvin himself took the position that what restrains is the gospel. Many reformed today hold this position that I'm detailing for you. G.K. Beale, as well as, as, well as uh, Kim Riddlebogger, are just a couple. 
first let me demonstrate the weight of this position, and we do so by first looking at a text like Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14. And you can turn with me there if you'd like. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 to 14. Now this text itself can be quite difficult in a matter of much debate, as Jesus in part is addressing the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but that is not the only question Jesus is addressing. And in verses 4 through 14, Jesus is answering the question of when is the end of the age? And in verse 9, this is what we read. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. You see, it is the gospel, Jesus says, that must be proclaimed throughout the whole world before the end comes and he destroys the man of sin. It is not until the gospel has been proclaimed, the gospel that restrains the influence and the teaching and the power of the man of sin, that Christ will then return to destroy him at the appearance of his coming. This is what we read in verses 7 and 8 in our, of our text today. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so I think that this makes perfect sense. Once the gospel has been proclaimed and reached that final soul, gospel proclamation will cease, and God's judgment instead comes in the person of Christ to destroy the wicked as both texts are speaking of that same event. And Matthew, I think, fills in what Paul takes for granted that the saints know. But if the gospel is what restrains, who is it that restrains in verse 7? This also, I think, Scripture answers for us. And it's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. We read this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now what this is describing is not something in the future. But rather, this describes the present age. And it was this angel, we are told, who did what? He seized or he bound or he restrained Satan so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. You see, Satan's power has been limited in that he cannot turn everyone against God in our present age, especially God's elect who will come to faith during this time through the proclamation of the gospel. And they will be protected and guarded from apostasy during this time. And here we see the sovereignty of God in making sure the gospel will have its effect 
and securing the safety of the church, thus guaranteeing that the gates of hell can never prevail against the church. And so I think what has the greatest biblical support is that the what that restrains the man of lawlessness in verse 6 is the gospel. And remember, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. And so the restrainer likewise had to already be at work as well. And then that one who we can attribute the restraining to in verse 7 is the angel John speaks of in Revelation 20, who were told, bound and restrained Satan for a time. And it is then from this that I wish to draw briefly two points of emphasis for the encouragement of the church. And the first is this, that we see God's providential hand in all that is transpiring. Verse 6 reads this, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. God has, according to his own good pleasure, decreed all that will take place to the smallest and most minute detail. We read that in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And what comfort and strength we ought to derive from these words, brothers and sisters. And it is in knowing this that this should help us to get through any time. Take what we're going through right now as we're kept in our homes by a pandemic. While so many are dumbfounded how and why this came about, we know that it was from the Lord's doing, from the Lord's hand. God is the dispenser of calamities, as everything is under His control. And so it is not some purposeless event we just have to wait for to end, that we just ride out. But it has great meaning and purpose, because God doesn't do things just because. No. Rather, calamities arise because of sin. And so as we sit in our homes and we contemplate things as they are now, we know that God is reforming us through them. He is teaching us about sin. He is drawing us to our knees in repentance. He is giving us a look at sin's consequences. And at the same time, He is revealing to all His greatness and His majesty. But just as the man of sin has an appointed time, this virus has but a time before God removes it as well. Before the pandemic ends, it is temporal. And just as this might be a brief time of affliction, as things, we know that he has also appointed a time for deliverance. And it is that ultimate deliverance at the appearing of Christ that we look forward to as saints during these times. The second point I want to pull out from verses 6 and 7 for the encouragement of the church is this. That we as the church, and specifically ministers of the word, play a part in the weakening and the slaying of this man of sin with the word. See how powerful God is, and that he can take lowly ministers of the word, and he can use them to strike the Antichrist, not with weapons of steel, but with the greatest spiritual weapon ever supplied to the church, the Word of God. And this isn't because ministers have the strength, but because God is all-powerful. 
And whatever the man of sin can muster up by the power of Satan, it will never be enough to overcome our Lord and his church, providing the assurance that one day this man of sin will be brought to ruin. This is in fact what we read in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When the Lord returns, it will be with a word that the man of lawlessness will be brought to nothing. The breath of his mouth is all that it will take. And we actually see this depicted for us in the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, if you'd like, you can turn with me there. Revelation, chapter 19, will begin in verse 11. We read this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire, and on his head are many theodents. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now look down in verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. He tells us, brothers and sisters, God will slay with the word. What is it that we read in Matthew 7? On that day, many will come saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that in your name? And what will Jesus respond with? The word. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now until that day, though, Paul provides us with greater detail into the character of the man of sin that will help us to uncover who this one is. In verses 9 and 10, we read this. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He tells us this man of sin is working in the power of Satan and he will come doing false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. He's going to deceive through a false word, we're told. He's going to do false signs, or it can be translated lying signs. They're going to be counterfeit, not real. But many will choose to believe them because they love the lie and desire not the truth. But this deception with lying signs and wonders 
fits exactly with who we're told this man of sin will be, a liar. We're told he will be a pseudo-Christian like Judas, one who claims to love and serve Christ, and he will take for himself an exalted seat in the church. He will look to take for himself the names of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He will look to take the place of Christ, but is being restrained in this present hour by the preaching of the gospel, so that he might not destroy the saints. But know for certain he has, and will continue to deceive multitudes of people as the head of a great apostasy, leading many to destruction. So with all that being said, now is the time. Now is the time to reveal what you've all been waiting for. The man of sin. But this is the reason why I've waited to do so thus far. I didn't want to just tell you who it was, but I wanted you to see for yourself. I wanted you to see from the text. I wanted you to see from the text that almost all the names given for who the man of sin could possibly be have in fact been proven not to be except one. One possibility remains. And in fact, and because of this, it shouldn't be a big surprise at all to us who it is. But it actually should be rather obvious. It's the papacy. The office of the Pope in the apostate Roman Catholic Church. It is the papacy. And the papacy alone that fits the bill. But in pointing this out, brothers and sisters, we should not find any sense of joy or satisfaction in saying this. And yet also, we shouldn't be made to feel hesitant to say it, fearing that people will accuse us of not showing humility. Paul pointed people out by name. That didn't make him arrogant or prideful. And Paul described the man of sin in such detail that we might be able to discern and do the exact same thing. Keeping quiet isn't humble. In fact, that's selfish. Open rebuke is better than love concealed. Don't, in the name of love, refuse to call out sin. And in some instances, is the sinner. And if there's any time to call out the sinner by name, how about the very man of sin? The one full of sin that leads millions to eternal destruction. Now I want to briefly demonstrate how the papacy is that round peg that fits into that round hole. How they're the only foot upon which the slipper fits. Remember last week we said, quoting the prophet Daniel, that the man of sin would make new law even though God alone is the divine lawgiver. But the papacy, in fact, attempts to make itself the divine lawgiver, doesn't it? Paul actually says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Is this not true of Rome? Do they not create new law 
and say that people are to abstain from eating meat and that priests may not marry. We highlighted last week that the man of sin will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Is this not exactly what the papacy does? Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the bridegroom. Christ is the high priest. Yet the papacy usurps for themselves all these names that belong to Christ alone. In fact, Pope Nicholas I, who was the Pope during in the ninth century, once said this, it is manifestly and satisfactorily shown that the Pope can neither be bound by the secular power nor loosed by it, since it is self-evident that God cannot be judged by men. In canon law, this is the law of the Roman Catholic Church given to the papacy, it states this, the Pope judges as if he were God, therefore his opinion may be opposed by no one. Also, according to canon law, the Pope holds all mortals subject to himself. Every human creature is under obedience to him, it states. Is this not exactly what Paul spoke of when he said, we will know the man of sin because he will exalt himself above every person and every institution, which Rome does, and does so openly. And yet we're not done. The man of sin we read today does lying signs and wonders with all wicked deception. Let me ask you, who is it that instituted five new sacraments? Who has created a priesthood in which they offer a new propitiatory sacrifice called the Mass, where they claim to turn bread and wine into the actual body and blood of Christ? Who is it that claims the power to make saints and who promote the adoration of Mary? Who else claims to have the power to forgive sins? How dare they say such a thing? Even the scribes understood that only God has the power to forgive sin. This is why the scribes questioned their heart how Jesus could do such a thing when he forgave the sins of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. But this is because they refused to believe in the Son of Man, who had all authority to forgive sins while on earth. What blasphemers, though, these men are who claim such authority for themselves on earth. To make people believe they have forgiveness. But in fact, the papacy has no power to do what they say. They perform lying signs and wonders. And they deceive with their false doctrine and their false gospel. The Pope is not the vicar of Christ on earth, but rather the vicar of Satan. Who else in history has led such a rebellion? A mass exodus of apostates under the guise of Christianity. No one else comes close. Sometimes it's forgotten. But the indulgences that Luther fought against have not disappeared in the Roman Church either. It was just a few days ago I read an article that said in fact that indulgences right now are being offered by Rome for Catholics who die in their home because of the coronavirus and they can't receive the sacraments. Now remember, an indulgence is the remission of the eventual punishment due for your sins that have been confessed and forgiven. And what the Vatican is offering is the remission of all punishment if the person is sorry for their sins and they say does something like prayerfully watches a celebration of the Mass or recites the Rosary, among other things. 
How despicable a thing to give false hope to one who's dying when in fact what they really need is the gospel, not your worthless indulgence. How they need to be told that Christ alone atoned for sin. That they are to believe in He alone and so be saved. That no work they do will help them. That the good news is Christ did it all so you can stop working. You can stop the pursuit of righteousness by your works, which you can never obtain and find your rest solely in Christ by faith alone. So what I've hoped to have done is cast any and all doubt concerning who this man of sin is. You might be able to point to some figure in history and say, well, they proclaim to do miracles, or they claim to be God. Couldn't they be the man of sin? Couldn't they be the one Paul is describing? And the answer is no. No other but the papacy of Rome fits each and every one of the traits and characteristics of the man of sin that Paul describes. The papacy claims authority over the church, what they describe to be the true, universal, and apostolic church. They claim for themselves infallibility. They introduce sacraments. They worship Mary and saints. They exalt bread. They forbid marriage. They deny salvation by faith alone. They take for themselves authority to create law and claim to be above law and equal to God. Everything Paul says the man of sin will do, they have done. This is the reason why the view that the papacy was the Antichrist during the time of the Reformation was called the Protestant view. There was no other. The Reformers seen all that is before us today, and they discern what Scripture revealed by the Spirit, as do we with them. And it is this Protestant view of the man of sin that leads us into our second point, historical evidence. Now, because point one was so long, I'm going to try to make point two and point three very brief. Now, my reason for going into the history concerning the man of sin is really singular in nature with the sole purpose to correct a common misunderstanding that I've heard in our churches for years when discussing this topic with others. And that misconception is that the origin of naming Antichrist or the man of sin with the papacy was a creation of the reformers that really came about because of what was going on in their time with the abuses by Rome. And this is simply not true. And this isn't a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. As I pointed out earlier in my sermon, just as the Reformers didn't originate the teaching that the Roman Empire was a restrainer, but they looked back upon church history, the same is true with respect to identifying the Pope with the man of sin. And so let me dispel this false notion, and I'll try to do so in quick order, by providing just a couple examples. In the year 9. 91, long before the Reformation, at the Synod of Reims, a bishop attacked Pope John XV, saying this, Reverend Fathers, who do you think he is, the man sitting in the highest chair, dressed in purple and glowing with gold? Doubtless, if he is bereft of charity and blown up and lifted on high without, with knowledge alone, he is Antichrist, seated in the temple of God and showing himself as if he were God. Here we have Roman Catholics themselves identifying 
Antichrist with the current Pope 500 years before Luther ever does. One other example we get is from a man named Joachim of Fiore, who lived in the 12th century, who was a monk who was credited with developing the teaching that the man of sin was to come from within the church. Now, Joachim wasn't just anyone. He was a counselor to popes and politicians, interacting with and influencing many leaders within the Roman Church. And in Bernard McGinn's book entitled Antichrist, he says this, Joachim's willingness to even consider the possibility of an apostate pope represents a very important step in the full-blown conception of a papal antichrist. This is 12th century. And so the Pope as Antichrist was a teaching that was building and developing long before the Reformers. Absolutely, Luther, Calvin, and others developed the teaching, no question, but they were not its originators. And so people can stop dismissing the Pope's identification with the Antichrist by the Reformers as nothing more than adolescent name-calling, because they were mad. And instead see that it was something they seen as biblical, recorded for us in Paul, and in John, and in Daniel, and in Revelation. Something they seen likewise as historical, found in medieval teaching. And it is because of this conviction that they would not remain silent on the matter. And this was true for all the great theologians of the time. We can think of a name. Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, Beza, Boozer, Bullinger, Ursinus, Puritans like Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, and Richard Sibbs, to name a few. And it was because they seen this as revealed in the scriptures, and not some petty feud, that they placed this belief that the papacy is the Antichrist within the confessions. This leads to point three, confessional significance. If you have a confession on hand, you can turn with me. Otherwise, you can just listen to me read our confession Chapter 26, paragraph 4, which reads this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, and government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. See, that's what the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says. Now one thing that is important to understand that I have not addressed yet and must first address before going further comes from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. As Paul describes the man of sin as the man of lawlessness, you see there's a, there's a definite article before man of sin, which oftentimes is argued must mean that he is speaking of only one particular person, and so it cannot be the papacy. But this is the same argument the Reformed heard before. And Francis Turkin answers it by pointing to a text like Matthew chapter 12, verse 35, where we read this. The good person, out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil here he says we have a definite article 
but now before an indefinite subject. The good person clearly isn't just talking about one good person, but every good person, an indefinite number of good people it could be. So just because it says, the man of lawlessness, it does not in any way negate the fact that the man of sin can also be identified with a succession of men, which is what our confession describes. Also, it is not uncommon to speak of the one representing the many. In Daniel 7, we read about four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast with ten horns. And these beasts are representative of not one king or one man, but a succession of kings to come from these four kingdoms. And so this is what we confess. The man of sin is the papacy, a succession of men, not any one man. Yes, when Christ returns, there will be a pope who will be that final pope seated in the temple of God whom the Lord will destroy ultimately. But the man of sin is not to be understood as any one pope in particular, but a succession of popes. And although today it's, it's common to think little of this reality, the Reformed thought about it enough to place it within their confession. They agreed on a lot of things. And yet not everything was recorded in the confession. So it ought to cause us to ask the question, why was it important enough to be put in the confession? And I think maybe one of the answers is this. How many of them had mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, family member after family member, friend after friend who belonged to the Roman church? And they saw that Rome was not a friend in the cause of the gospel, but a foe. They were leaving droves of people to hell with their false doctrine and their false gospel. And how many of us have family members and friends, likewise, within the Roman church? This is why it's important to openly identify the papacy as a man of sin, in order that we not treat Rome as a partner in the cause of Christ, that we do not treat them or allow others to view them as Christian, but rather see them as among the people that need to be evangelized. They aren't to be treated as brothers, but unbelievers. Even today, we see the Catholic Church trying to appear as one of us. Many today are calling themselves now evangelical Catholics in order to sound just like us. And so I don't think we do the flock any favors when we refuse to recognize the Catholic Church for who they are, unbelievers, and the papacy for what it is, that man of sin. The Roman Church isn't just another denomination under the Christian umbrella. They stand outside the true Church. I was listening to a sermon on this topic not too long ago, and the minister made a point that I think is a great point. He said this, so many people today say that the Reformed were influenced by their times. This is why they call the papacy the man of sin. But he said, in fact, it is us in our time who are now being influenced to not call him the man of sin for the sake of peace and ecumenicalism. And to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, I fear that he is right. But big picture, as we draw to a close in our study on the man of sin, I think what is important to take away for the church and for all its members from these ten verses is this. 
that it will only be through tribulation that we enter glory. There will be no golden age of Christianity. There will be no Christianized world. There will be pain and suffering, persecution and death. But if we just listen to God's word, we will not be deceived. Allowing the Spirit to teach us and to guide us into all righteousness. That by the renewal of our minds, nothing will be able to shake us from the sure and sturdy hand of the Lord. Knowing that whatever we go through now, brothers and sisters, it, it cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed at the coming of Christ. When deliverance comes to those who love and serve Christ by taking up the cross now. And although the kingdom of Satan is at work, the greater and more glorious kingdom of God is also at work. And it will be comprised of all whom the Father has loved from all of eternity. He will suffer to lose not one of his own. And perhaps many of those people now sit in false churches. They are deceived. Yet we know that God will remove the scales from their eyes at his appointed time. But he will do so by his word. The word, the powerful message of the gospel, and the promise that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This we declare in the power of God. No minister can save you. No church can save you. I cannot save you. Children, your parents cannot save you. Your works cannot save you. Only Jesus who shed blood and perfect life are enough to save you. His death accomplished all that it sought out to do, which is why Jesus can cry out upon Calvary's cross, It is finished. So let us not grow weary or frightened by Paul's warning in our text. But let us, brothers and sisters, rest confidently in these sure words of Christ. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. You, Lord, are worthy of all praise, glory, majesty, and honor. You who formed the world and everything therein. Father, we thank you for salvation wrought in Christ. We thank you for the changing of our hearts and the renewing of our minds. We pray, Lord, that through the preached word, through private study, you would continue to shape us into the image of Christ. We pray, Lord, for boldness to declare the truth, but also humility, so that it has done so in love and with all gentleness. Father, we ask you to apply what we have learned here today to our hearts, that we may not forget it, but exercise ourselves in this truth throughout our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.